Welcome to Inside the Bradfield Centre, where we tell the stories of the companies, partners and staff that make the Bradfield Centre community so special. I'm James Barton, Managing Director of the Bradfield Centre. Joining us on today's episode is Bruce Bedloff, who is the co-founder and CEO of Blog Ventures. Bruce, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. It's very much appreciated. Why don't we start with just exploring your kind of early career and uh, your connections to Cambridge? Okay. Thank you, James. And yeah, thanks for for having me on. My career spanned about uh, 30 years now in the sort of deep tech arena. I'm actually a material scientist by trade and I studied, I'm an American as well, and and studied at uh, Georgia Tech, which... uh, is actually a, a quite a top uh, engineering school, but that that technical background is actually important to me and and actually to to where I've gone through. After university, I, I went to work for a semiconductor company called Texas Instruments. Started my life in the in the fabrication plant, so I used to have to dress up in what's called a smock and you know be in the clean room and such, and then. As that time went on, I learned that there were sort of two directions in life. Either you stay technical or or you take your technical skills and and move into the commercial arena. And while at Tech Sentiments, I moved into uh, the product marketing group and started to learn what marketing was. And I I have to say, making a move from a technical background into marketing was was quite a challenge. And we can explore that another time. But then after that, um, I spent uh, another few years at Texas Instruments in the marketing team. And then I was called by a UK group while I was living in Texas and asked if I wanted to go out to Silicon Valley and, and work for them there. And so I joined this group and it happened to be Arm. And clearly Arm is a, is a Cambridge-based company. And I started for them back in, in 2001. They brought me in as part of their strategic marketing team looking at a a specific application area, which was in the imaging space, because that's the kind of activity I was doing at Texas Instruments. And then after a while, I was able to move up the ladder and and took over the overall strategic marketing group there called, it was called segment marketing. And our job was to really go understand what the market needed uh, so that we could make sure we were making the right products back at ARM. I then wanted to move in and and get into more of a finance role. And so I went to work for the CFO and took on the corporate development activity. Um, So we actually had investor relations within corporate development. um, And really because we we needed to explain technical things to investors. But also we had M&A and and venture capital and, and overall corporate strategy. And by that time, I was living in Cambridge and, and lived there for, uh, well, I lived in London and traveled to Cambridge, but but got to spend quite a bit of almost nine years uh, engaged in, in Cambridge while I worked for ARM. Right, really interesting. Yeah, so you kind of, you've seen firsthand the, the, the growth of the Cambridge tech cluster and uh, the kind of village mentality the city has. Do you know what? I think it, when we came up for the brand build you know, activity, I think I really got a sense of how big things had gotten. Uh, I don't travel there as much anymore since I left for my new role, but it's amazing to see how 
how Cambridge has really just expanded uh, the technical cluster expansion, the, the sort of university expansion, and just how that whole ecosystem is really working together to really promote technology on a global basis, not just in the UK. And I was really taken aback by just how, how things had accelerated and grown. Yeah, really nice. So you actually touched on there something that's really interesting. Um, your kind of career conversion, if you like, from technical to more commercial and business. Honestly, I'm not sure if it's a trope at this stage, but there's often a view that Cambridge-based businesses do lack the kind of the marketing and sales skills. You know, they're deeply technical and uh, you know very IP-based, but they kind of lack that that commerciality to them. I mean, are there a couple of nuggets or a couple of insights that you might be able to share in, in that kind of career conversion that you went through being an engineer? Yeah, I, and to be honest, I, it's almost, and I apologize for any listeners out there about the sort of cultural view here, but in the U.S., you're, you're brought up in a much more marketing-type arena, and also we've had technology around us for probably you know a couple of decades extra. And what I've seen over here, so I've lived in the U.K. now for 20 years, uh, and what I've seen over here is as we start to see more uh, commercial people, you know, with more startups, serial entrepreneurs. I'm seeing a massive change and development where the UK, you know, technical skill set is being augmented with also a, a commercial um, skill set on top of that. And I think it's great to build tech, but you've got to sell it at some point. Now, uh, one way to do that is to go engage with the Americans, and they're still going to be very good at selling. But we also need to develop those skill sets here in the UK. And I think, you know, if I look at something like ARM and certainly the transitions it's going through right now and it's able to, a lot of the ARM team is now out and and free to explore different roles. You know, a lot of those individuals will, you know, have a really strong commercial skill set and they'll be able to teach and mentor other technical teams. But I think that's the key learning one has to know is, you know, tech for tech's sake, you really can't build it and people come. You really have to go sell it and then build it or build it and then sell it. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes with how great the technology is. But uh, in reality, you've got to find somebody who's going to buy it before the technology is ever going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that does form a lot of the kind of conversations and support that we bring in at the Bradfield is just helping supplement those technical skills with more of a commercial angle on, on activity. Um, so we totally agree with that. So, you know, describing those uh, later stage roles at ARM where you're working with M&A and venture and uh, those kinds of things, I guess that's uh, a natural bridge to then going to block and setting block up, block ventures. While I was there, I was, I was working with another uh, corporate venture. So I had set up the corporate venturing activity at Arm, and I was working with one of the corporate venturing guys at Vodafone. And, you know, essentially you had two UK technology companies just playing at the absolute global scale. And we wanted to bring the skill sets that we had learned in our organizations out into the, you know, the entrepreneurial market and into the venture market. And so, we both left our jobs back in 2013 to set up Block, uh, a little bit different. Again, uh, a, a group that highly respects technical and commercial capability. And I have to say in the UK, it's not always a, a natural thing for 
technologists to be revered when they're commercial and for commercial people to be revered when they're technologists. But our intent was to create a, a venture capital group that actually did that and really helped really, you know, great technology gain global exposure. So we set up Block and, um, and you know, we've been doing that ever since. So, so we just quickly, we invest in early stage deep tech companies, really in early stages, sort of, you know, seed plus or series A type companies. And really we will look for things where we have some knowledge or experience in. So if you think of a company that could benefit from the networks formed at Arm or Vodafone, then you're probably somebody that would fit within our, our deal flow and potential portfolio. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned deep tech. Are there specific like verticals of deep tech that you're really focused on or is it a, a broad view? Yeah. And no, again, deep tech can be, can be defined different ways. We think of a technology stack. So if you think of a, a stack of technology, one layer on top of each other, all the way up to the application layer, you know, take Facebook. And then underneath that, you've got a lot of technology to make that application work, everything from, you know, data centers and optical fiber and all those sorts of things. And so we really concentrate on things that are deeper in that technology stack. And if you, again, really get into it because of our ARM and Vodafone backgrounds, we really focus on areas in the sort of telecoms infrastructure, compute infrastructure, semiconductor companies, you know, because we think these are the things that one form the basis of all technology for the next 20 years, as well as, you know, the things that probably less get focused on generally by the venture capital community. And so we thought it was a pretty uh, opportunistic spot for us to engage on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, Cambridge is a great place to, to go scouting for deep tech. So uh, you guys ran a really successful event here at the Bradfield a few weeks ago. It is. And, you know, again, I think there's there's a few things that you look for in a sort of ecosystem. And Cambridge has all of those. And, and we've seen it grow over the last 20 years. So usually, you know, you need a university that's going to be able to churn out the talent that's going to be able to go work for for the sort of early stage companies. You need the actual customers. So you need companies there that are going to then buy the products of the of the startups themselves. And then you need the capital. And so you need the venture capital money that's there to be able to help these startups come together. And I have to say, you know, and I'd like to think that Arm was a, a, a seed and a, and a helper in this. Clearly, the university was there. And what's not surprising, the venture capital comes as soon as those other two bits are, are available. So Cambridge really has all three of those components all mixed together. And again, you, you won't see it. In you know, the other places that you might see the same kinds of things are things like Silicon Valley, clearly, you know, with Stanford and the whole technology uh, complex there, and then the venture capital. You also see it around Austin. You see it around MIT, and probably in the UK, I would say that you know the uh, Cambridge has the best concentration of those activities in the areas that we certainly look at the the deep tech and the sort of semi and, and telecoms infrastructure. And so, you know, that's why Cambridge is a very attractive place for us to do our activities like we did at the Bradfield to make sure that we're part of the ecosystem and just to, you know, if I'm honest, we're not the biggest brand in the venture capital space. So to make sure that people know we're out there and they should get in touch if they have an idea. Return to the office with confidence. 
At the Bradfield Centre, we offer a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and homeworking mix. We have a range of high-quality meeting and collaboration spaces for hire, and for event organisers, our auditorium, lakeside pavilion and atrium spaces are all back to full capacity and dates are filling up fast. If you are looking to run an event, get in touch to discuss requirements including live video recording and live video streaming options. Visit bradfieldcentre.com for more information or call 01223 919 600. So with your perspective of having both the US and the UK perspective, What's your opinion of the kind of differences between the two startup ecosystems? I guess sometimes Europe gets a little bit fixated with comparing itself to Silicon Valley. You know, do you think that's wasted energy or, you know, do you think that's a good model to follow? How do you contrast the two markets? What's your take on that? Let's take early stage startups and and what you find in Europe and UK, especially in UK because of our exposure. And actually probably was one of the reasons for for armed success, and then look at versus the the US. So in the UK, it's an overused sort of commentary, but the UK is very good at under-promising and over-delivering. The engineering talent, the level of concentration and effort that goes into the products here is, is significant. And I would say that's much higher than what you find in the US. The US has gotten itself into a much more what would be an MVP type strategy, minimal viable product, where the the product is just enough to get something going and then try to figure out if it's going to win or fail. The UK and Europe is less like that, much more about making sure it works before it goes to market. Now, both of those sides have challenges, right? Because over in the UK, it's like waiting too long to get the product to market. And in the US, you're taking a half-baked product to market before it goes. So those are sort of on the early stage front are are sort of the two, in our view, key differences. So we like being here in the UK and Europe because we know that the technologies that we're investing in are solid and really thought out on a world-class scale. The other challenge you've got is appetite, and that's investor appetite. And that's probably the area where we're most disappointed here in the UK and Europe about is the, the risk appetite of the investor market on this side of the water versus the US. The US has a much higher risk appetite. That means they're going to pay proper valuations for companies, making sure founders get proper valuations for the companies and the technologies they built. And especially in times like now where the the world seems to be under great challenges, you know, you need investors that are really ready to to back founders and and go the the full distance. In Europe, we found there's only a handful that are really ready to go after the the early stage deep tech because it's felt like it's a scary space because you have to know about technology. And again, most of the venture capital in in Europe and UK do not have the operating and the technical background to be able to make decisions on those kinds of technologies. So again, I would say the biggest challenge for us as an industry here in UK and Europe is actually having the investors. And therefore, what you end up having to do is build your product here in the UK and Europe and then ship it into the US once it gets mature enough so you can find the right investment and risk capital to really grow it to a a company of global scale. And I think, look, that's going to change over time and there's more money and more risk appetite as it develops over here in the UK and Europe. But in the situation we're at, you know, in the near to medium term, we are going to look for, you know, really U.S. funders at the growth capital stage 
but you can really find the brilliant technology here in, in Europe and, and the UK. Yeah, that's interesting. And are you surprised then with that more risk-averse style of investment in the European side? Are you surprised that the US VCs have not spent more time and in, in invested more in Europe and UK? I'm not surprised because I was reading about Intel when I was 10 years old. So, you know, again, technology was intertwined in our culture and our lives. And, and so we've been around it a, a bit longer. The fact that the U.S. hasn't spent more time over here. Well, the problem is that the, there is so much activity going on in the U.S., even though there's that veneer, they're spending their time. And again, it's an old adage, but most venture capital is is invested about two hours away from the home office. And the reason is you're spending a lot of time with these teams, therefore you want somebody there. So you're starting to see more of it. You see Sequoia, you see a lot more general catalysts, a lot more of the US VCs that are setting up. I mean, Highland Capital's been here for a very long time. So you're seeing more of it. I think there's still a, a lack of investment here. And when you're in a US VC and you're challenging for capital allocation here versus the home office, you know, you're always going to be at a slight disadvantage over here. But again, it's changing. It'll be in 20 years, it'll even be better. And in 20 years after that, it'll be better. So it's not a stagnant activity. But right now, that's that's sort of where we're at. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, so talking about the, the markets in general, you know, especially thinking about the founders that might be listening to this, we're hearing lots of scare stories, you know, layoffs in tech, public markets are down, especially with tech stocks, potentially the access to capital is, is going to get tougher over the next 18, 24 months. So on the one hand, we've seen, certainly here at the Bradfield, you know, we've seen our startup Series A is go from something like $1 to $5 million to $10, 20000000 million. So in some ways, the, the raises are getting larger. But, you know, are we kind of getting to that point where winter's coming and it's going to be much harder for founders to raise money? I define it as two things that are sort of switched over the last, I don't know, six months, let's say. Last year, you had a lack of employment, of work capital, but you had an overabundance of actual capital. And where we're at today is there's a feeling in the market that we're, we've got a, a lack of real capital, cash capital. And over time, we're going to see the work capital come back because actually, I think one of the most damaging thing to the founders out there right now was how difficult it was to act, hire people, the hiring of people. And so, so actually, some of the, the labor market freeing up and some of the some of the companies that maybe shouldn't have gotten funding probably going under and, and releasing people back into the system and things like that is actually going to be very helpful to the founders out there because, again, it, it was getting very, very expensive to hire people and really out of the genre of what a, a UK founder would be able to afford to hire somebody to, to come in and develop their product. On the actual capital front, I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I'll tell you why. There was so much money raised. I know everybody talks about dry powder, but you have to really think about the economics of what's going on inside venture capital companies. And venture capital companies are paid on a percentage fees that they've drawn down. So in general, most VCs will not get paid until they draw that money down. And they can only draw that money down when they put it to work. So almost there's an incentive for capital to continue to be deployed so that the VCs can be getting their fees to pay their own salaries and such to in order to and to draw down the capital. So there 
there is a there is a feeling to me that I think over the next 12 to 18 months, I don't think, I personally don't think there's going to be a large difference between capital deployments between last year and this year. The valuations are going to change simply because the messaging has changed, because the environment's to change, and it's a buyer's market right now, and therefore, in a buyer's market, valuations are going to go down. Now, again, as compared to the U.S., I think you know the U.K. is going to be more resilient because they were already more compressed than they were in the U.S., and so I think we'll we'll see more resilience here on our valuations over here. But I think you know capital will still be deployed. Now, the interesting effect will be then in 12 to 18 months, if there is this a true winter and the, the LPs are not prepared to fund the next rounds of funds, then we could see the bow wave of, of lack of capital coming in 12 to 18 months as the, the feces have put their money to work already, but now they're sort of out of capital and they needed to raise a new fund and they can't raise a new fund. So I would be thinking, well, it might occur more in the sort of 24, 25 range of when, you know, the, the venture market might start to see some, or maybe, you know, late 23, when you'll start to see that as, as people have deployed the capital they got, the dry powder's gone and it hasn't been replenished. This is all speculation. But the one thing I do think is I know there's a lot of money that's been raised. I know the messaging is very advantageous for venture right now because it is a, a buyer's market. Can I say one other thing? The other challenge for the general uh, founder right now is secondaries. And secondary is uh, when somebody that's in a private company is trying to sell their shares. And so there's a lot of established companies out there that are now uh, looking for, and some of the employees and such that are looking to sell their shares or the venture capitals. And so now you've got what's called primary capital. So the new stuff coming in, trying to compete with stuff that's already there. And I think there is a little bit of a challenge there on where that capital is being deployed. But again, these are some new dynamics of the market that we'll, we'll see how they play out. Fundamentally, I think the early stage founders are still going to be in a very robust position to raise money this year, although I do believe at slightly lower valuations than previous. Mm, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Appreciate your insights there. So just kind of wrapping up the conversation, you know, what does the next 12 to 18 months look like for Block Ventures? And uh, I'm assuming Cambridge features in that plan pretty heavily. Yeah, it is. And, and I think for us, uh, we're staying the course. I mean, nothing's really changed for us. We don't do a lot of investments. We're very selective. It's because we're a very high conviction, high, highly active. So we get very heavily involved with our with our portfolio companies. We now have put a person directly into Cambridge so we can we can be closer to the founders that we're, we're working with up there. And so I would expect that we will be doing more activity. I mean, actually, Aliso, who is our investment manager that's represented up there, was just in a, on a panel. Uh, we're doing a lot of engagements with the universities around things like quantum computing. Photonics is also a very hot area for us sitting into Cambridge. Cambridge. Um, so yeah, I think our, our program is sort of stay the course. Um, I think the deep tech is resilient in these times of sort of economic turmoil because the timeframes for these things to come to fruition are very long term. So I think, you know, for us, we're pretty relaxed and I can see that, you know, we will be doing only more and more in Cambridge and, and getting out more to meet people. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, that's that's really good to hear, and hopefully we can help you on that mission. 
so yeah, I mean, thanks again for taking the time to come on. It's very much appreciated. So thanks once again to Bruce for coming on today's show. The show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV, and you can listen to previous episodes by searching for Inside the Bradfield Centre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or by visiting bradfieldcentre.com. Thank you.